You know, I've discovered that it's not so much about whether a song is old or new. I mean, I know we have people on, in both camps. Some of you are like hymns. If it's, you know, before the 13th century, there's certain people who are, I'm not interested. Only if it's in Latin. You know, there's some people who like the old hymns, and there's some people who like recent stuff. But I've discovered just about 30 seconds ago that it's not so much when it was written, it's how it's sung, right? If we sing it like we mean it, it doesn't matter when it was written. If it's got good words, if it's honoring Jesus, it doesn't matter when. So that's an old song, but it's a good one. Um, we are starting a new series, and I'll talk a little bit about that here in a second. But uh, we're going to just jump right into Scripture. We like Scripture at this church, so why not start there? That seems like a good place to start. So if you'd be interested in reading some Scripture, if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 8, we're going to do a, a little bit of setup as we get into this really important text. And it's not like the setup isn't important, but, but what we're gonna, where we're going to land, I think, is going to be really helpful uh, for us. So Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. So Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? He's not like, come... You know, he's not proclaimed himself the Messiah yet. He hasn't proclaimed himself Christ yet. And so he's still kind of wondering, like, what's the word on the street? What are people thinking? Like, like how is this all going so far? And, and it says they replied, some say John the Baptist. He had died, so that would have been a unique situation. Others say Elijah. He had been dead a long time. And still others say one of the prophets. I mean, they thought Jesus was somebody. But they, you know, they, had, they were kind of circling, circling around like, you're a great religious figure. At least the word on the street was this. But then he says, but what about you? Talking to these 12 people around him, these 12 followers. What about you? Who do you say I am? Sounds like it's time for someone to take their medicine. Might be a call from Jesus. You never know. All right. Who do you say that I am? I remember visiting a church one time where my, uh, my parents were attending at the time. I was in Bible college, so, you know, I'm this Bible college student, and I come to this church, and for some reason, I don't know what got in me, but for some reason, it was the Sunday evening service, you know, some churches still have that, Sunday evening service. I decided I'm going to sit in the front row. Nobody sits in the front row, except for no NCJ. Nobody else sits in the front row. So I'm sitting in the front row, and I don't know if you've ever had anything like this happen. Probably not, especially when I'm preaching. But I was zoned out a little bit, you know what I mean, right? Where you're just like, something happens, and you're just kind of like, you, you just detune a little bit from what's going on. You're just kind of out of it. And so I'm sitting there on the front row, and I don't know if that's why he did this, but whatever reason, I'm sitting there, and I'm sure I have kind of this like zoned out look on my face. You can tell when somebody's not with you. And, uh, and I hear, isn't that right, Patrick? But I didn't hear anything preceding that. So I don't know what I'm agreeing to. And so I look up at the speaker, and I've got like, I'm sure kind of like a complete blank look in my eyes. Like, I wasn't listening. And now everybody knows I wasn't listening because I don't know what he said. And I don't know what, should I say yes, no? I have no idea. If I say yes, is he like, yeah, sin is terrible, isn't that right? Yes. Or, uh, you know, God is good, isn't that right? No, I don't know. I just don't know which way to go here. So he sees my predicament, and he repeats the question. And he says this. This is the question. He goes, he, he uses this Greek word. I'm in Bible college at the time. He says this Greek word, and he says, what's the meaning of that Greek word? And he, kinda, and he says, isn't that right? I had no earthly idea what the answer was. I had no clue. I was in Bible college. I, I was like, come on, man. I'm sitting on the front row. I shouldn't be exempt from answering Bible questions on the front row. I'm sitting here. 
I had no idea what he was talking about. I had no clue, no answer, no nothing. The whole room is stopped to listen to my answer, and I don't have one. And I'm in Bible college. Like, this is not like a great start to anything. I had no, so he kind of like, he, he, he let it hang there for too long. At least it felt too long. I felt like I was starting to sweat, getting red, you know, sitting on the front row, this whole thing, this whole mess. And he just kind of let it hang there because I didn't have an answer. Now, I learned two things from that experience. Uh, number one, never sit on the front row, evidently. That's a bad way to get called on. But number two, I learned the definition of that Greek word. Just in case, if ever in any situation arose in the future where that came up, I would know that. Like when the spotlight is put on you to answer a question, you feel like you've got to have the right answer. It doesn't always feel like I don't know works, even though that's probably safer. So Jesus looks at his guys and he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And you can tell he's not just asking a question about, you know, who am you're Jesus. I mean, we've met your brothers, your mom, you're Jesus. He's asking a question about something much deeper. And they want the right answer. And so Peter because it was always Peter. If you read the Gospels, it's always Peter. He's always the one that's just like stepping up, doing something crazy, doing something cool. It's always Peter. Peter answered, and he looked at Jesus. I think he probably looked around at the other guys, and he's like, "Ah, you know, this is, I think we've been thinking this. You know, we're all in green. And Peter steps up, and he says, you are the Messiah. Now that, in the Bible, was a moment. That was a moment when that happened. I imagine like, to acknowledge that Jesus Christ was this person that through Scripture had been prophesied to come for, for thousands of years, to say that this person sitting right here asking you this question, is that person? That's a moment. Sometimes at church we have these moments, and Jordan and I will kind of dissect a service afterwards, and we'll talk about like, hey, that was a good moment at church when this thing happened. Um, uh, it's probably been a few months ago, maybe more now. Uh, a couple in church came to us, say they, they knew some people that had some needs. They needed things like furniture and stuff for their kids, and they put out the call. And one Sunday morning, people just brought out all this stuff that they had. People just had couches, and they just had dining room tables. Like, how do you have extras of those? Like, oh yeah, I got two dining room tables. You know, I got a backup just in case. But they brought it, and they gave it to this family, and it was like, it was a moment. It was a nice moment for our church because we were like, it was very Acts too. We were like doing what the church is supposed to be doing, like giving our stuff and and helping people out. That's a moment when we have a a baptism at church and we all kind of shuffle back there and we try to hurt everybody. All right, everybody be quiet, you know, and we, we get to watch somebody take on Christ in baptism and we're singing and we're praying. That's a moment. I feel that. That's a moment. That's something good is happening. Something supernatural is happening. Last Sunday, uh, we were singing the song, It Is Well, um, which is evidently the church's most favorite song. We did that survey. It Is Well is your top song. It wasn't my choice, but whatever. You guys can have your own opinion. Uh, It's a good song. It's a good song. But my five-year-old son wanted me to hold him. And so I'm standing in the back, and he wants me to hold him piggyback style. So I've got him on my back piggyback style, and the church is just singing out, it is well. And I got this little five-year-old voice in my ear saying, it is well. It was just like, oh man, my heart was melting. That maybe wasn't a moment for you, but that was a moment for me. Oh, that was a moment. And when Jesus declares that, or excuse me, when Paul declares that, or Paul, Peter, I'll get it right eventually. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. That is a moment. I bet you they had goosebumps. I bet you kind of a shiver went through the room there because this is something huge. He's unveiling, he's revealing something huge about the identity of Jesus that is going, listen, that is going to change the world. 
the fact that this human being, that the, this God that came down in the flesh, was, was God, was the Messiah, that fact would change the world. And it's changed your world. And Peter seemed to be the first guy to get to kind of like acknowledge that. That was a moment. That's amazing. That's huge. Now, we can't underestimate that moment, but we have to understand that to understand what begins to unfold next. So in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, so Jesus like, okay, good, you got that. That's important that you got that. But now you need to know some things about how this is all going to go down because it's probably not how you thought. You found the Messiah, but things are about to get rough. And he says this in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. That's the elders, the religious elders, the people who are like kind of maintaining the status quo of religion in their nation. He's going to be rejected by those elders. He's going to be rejected by the chief priests. That was like the highest like religious office in the land. And Jesus, the Messiah, was going to be rejected by the chief priests. That's crazy. These guys, these disciples, their minds are like, what? You're, that, are you kidding? You're the Messiah. Why would they reject you? He's going to be rejected by the teachers of the law. And, and this really blew them away, because they're sitting there listening to him or standing there listening to them. And, he's, and he says, and then he's going to be killed. And they're like, whoa. All right, that's too far. Like, like maybe some people won't get that you're the Messiah, but going to be killed. No, you're going to establish a kingdom. You're not going to be killed. That's crazy. And then, and then he says, and after three days rise again. And now Peter's like, okay, you have flipped your lid. This is nuts. This doesn't make any sense. And so Peter actually literally does this. This is one of the first times Jesus spoke plainly about who he was and what he was doing. Mark chapter 8, verse 32. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter just, listen to this, Peter just said, you are the Messiah from God, come to take over Israel, come to establish the new kingdom. Oh, you're wrong about this one though. Like you're wrong, you know, he's getting in his face, he's waving his finger. Rebuke is a tough word. He rebukes the Messiah. Can you imagine that? Like, isn't it exciting when you're in class, you know, when you're a kid? Uh, if you're homeschooled, it's especially exciting because it's your mom or your dad, right? And your teacher's wrong about something and you're like, ah, you're wrong. That's not true. You know, I get that in Bible class all the time. I'll be saying something and I'll be like, oh, it's verse, you know, 20 of Romans chapter 7. And I'll have some kids in class like, actually, that's incorrect. And then they'll just like totally quote the whole thing. Like, oh, okay, you're right. But it's a joy for some reason to point out where somebody's wrong. And I don't know why Peter does this. He's just got it right in a big way. And now he's totally getting it wrong. And Jesus does something unbelievable. Like, this is crazy because we, Jesus is love and grace. And we know that sometimes he got mad at people. But he does something crazy here. And he says, when he, Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. So Jesus is teaching. I don't know. Maybe he's standing off like in a soap opera, looking off in the distance. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. Maybe all the disciples are back here kind of behind him. And Peter's like, what? That's crazy talk. Stop talking like that. You can't say that. And Jesus turns and looks at him. And he's like, uh-oh, we got some eye contact now. Now we're in trouble turns and looks at him, and he rebukes Peter. And this is what he says. He says, get behind me, Satan. Like, if you're the teacher's pet, that is a rough sentence to have said to you. That's hard. Like, you like the pats on the head? Get behind me, Satan. And Jesus wanted it to be so clear that what he was saying was so important that this was going to happen, that this was the way it was, that this is the type of kingdom I'm establishing, that if you have a misconception about this, you are opposed to me. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he does this, and this is really where we want to get into this text, and this is so important. 
So he's talking to his disciples. He turns and he rebukes Peter. And he's like, listen, buddy, you have got to get this right. Disciples, you have got to get this right. In fact, everybody, if you're a follower, he gathers this crowd. He's like, hey, everybody gathering. I got something important to tell you. You guys need to hear this. You guys are beginning. It's beginning to dawn on you that I am the Messiah. But you need to hear this, what I'm about to say. And this is what he says. He calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple. By the way, I don't know if that's you yet or not, but that is who you are called to be, a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are, and that means somebody who follows Christ. You are called to that. You have to make the choice to do that, but that is what you are called to do. And Jesus is laying the framework for us. Whoever, whoever wants to be my disciple, if you want to follow this life, if you want this life, then this is what you have to do. So we better get out our pens. We better get out our highlighters. We better write down notes. Like if you're sitting listening to Jesus say to this, say this, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, Jesus, I, what, what do I need here? I want to be your disciple. What do I got to do? What do I got to know? What do I, hoops do I got to jump through? What do I got to do? And he says this, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. He who wants to be my disciple has to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He needs us to know that the type of kingdom that he is establishing is not one that advances through force, but one that advances through self-denial, self-sacrifice, and followership of Jesus, surrender to Jesus. This is so important because that idea of advancing the kingdom through, through force and through logic and reason and argument and, and outdoing somebody else just creeps into our idea of what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus says, it's not that at all. If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. All right. All right, Patrick. Okay. We can go home now, right? That seems like a good sermon. Wrap it up. Let's sing a song. Let's get out of here. I got a little bit more I want to share with you. I know this may, whatever, take it, take it for what you think. But, uh, but it's, it's important that we understand what Jesus is saying here. You have, uh, you have pro- let me set it up this way. You have probably noticed over the last five, six, seven years, maybe more, um, there is this, this uh, phenomenon. Maybe that is, it's become popular. It's, you know, back in the day, people just used to run marathons and they just used to run like 5Ks and 10Ks. And I guess that wasn't good enough for humanity. And so now we have to make it harder. So now people have to run 5Ks, but then they throw a bunch of obstacles at you. And so you have to climb over things and swim under things and do, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? So there, there is a bunch of these, Spartan race, a bunch of that kind of stuff. And, and most of you know, I've talked about this before, but most of you know that a group of guys from church here did this thing called the Tough Mudder. And I, I think it's called the Tough Mudder because it's tough and it involves a lot of mud. I'm not sure, but that seems like why they call it that. So this is a picture of some, like one of the things you got to do. Now, listen, <clears throat> you have to pay money to get dirty, run a half marathon, and swim through little tiny tunnels like that with water. Now, some of you are like, yeah, tough. I want to do that. I'm tough. I want to do that. It does, it does appeal to me. I get that. And I get it's also lunacy. I totally get that. And some of you are like, this is the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen in my life. What a waste of time. What a waste of money. Like, like uh, I've, you know, I like to do things like running 5Ks, things like that. My wife is like, why do I got to pay somebody to run? I can run for free. Even better, I can sit on my rear end on a couch for free. Like, that's even better. And it's free. 
And that doesn't make sense. Why would I do this? So, you know, a bunch of us, like, we signed up. We did this. It was fun. We had a good time. But here's the— here's, and then you get a t-shirt at the end. That's really the thing. I looked for my t-shirt this morning. I couldn't find it. I was going to wear it to preach, and I couldn't find it. I'm so bummed. Like, now how do I prove to you that I've actually done this thing? You've got to take my word for it, I guess. But people get this t-shirt, and then they can, like, walk away. They can walk around being like, I'm tough. Check it out. I got the t-shirt. got the headband. I'm tough. I'm extreme. I'm tough. I'm radical. And that's the appeal of these types of things. But here's the little secret. They don't let you in on. All right? The little secret is that you can sign up. You can pay whatever this costs. I don't remember too much. And you can run this race. And you can get right up to one of these obstacles. And you can say, hmm, not a fan of tight enclosed spaces filled with water. I'm just going to go around this one. This is true. You can do the Tough mutter and never actually go through any of the obstacles. And you can get to the end of the race, and you can get your picture taken with your t-shirt, you'd be like, I'm tough, I'm tough, I'm tough, but never actually do anything tough. I'll, I have one more here I'll show you. This one, I don't remember what they call it, but it's all nasty, muddy, climbing this wall. Why would you pay to do this, right? That is a sign of, like, something wrong with a person's head that they would pay to do this. I know. I get it. But here's the thing. You can skip the entire tough part and still get the t-shirt. You don't actually... So if you see somebody walking around with a cool t-shirt saying they did something cool, you should like, really? Did you really? They'll probably lie. But you should be like, yeah, did you really? Did you do all the obstacles? Did you run around? Did you cheat? Any of that stuff? You should do that just to see what happens. You can get the t-shirt but not really do anything hard. We're starting a brand new series, and I want to just briefly talk about this uh, by way of helping us understand what we're going to be launching into. But the series is called Jesus Light. Jesus Light. And the idea is that Jesus said some tough things. He said some hard things and things that challenge us, things that challenge our presuppositions, things that challenge our lifestyle choices, things that challenge the things that we want to do in our lives with our time, with our money, with our comfort, things that make life more difficult than we want it to be. We're going to be launching a series about how we, as Christians, sometimes try to find our ways around those obstacles and those difficulties. That's my instinct, right? My instinct is to try to find a way around the tough commands of Jesus. And I wrote my instinct because I didn't want to, like, presume on you, but I, I really think it's all of us. I think when we come up to an obstacle where Jesus says, this is what I need you to do, I need you to love your enemies, we're like, mm, a little difficult. I'm going to catch you around on the other side of that one. When Jesus says, you know what, I... Uh, I really need you to be sacrificially generous. Oh, I don't know. You know, I'm just, this isn't my thing. I'll just wait for you guys at the end with a t-shirt. When Jesus says something like, I need you to forgive. I need you to buckle down and take something difficult that someone has done to you and forgive them for it. Mm, I don't know. I want the t-shirt. Not interested in those obstacles. My instinct is to try to find a way around the tough uh, commands of Jesus. Turn the other cheek. Mm-mm. What? Let somebody hit me twice? No way. That's not the American way. It's ridiculous. And so we find these theological loopholes where not only do we not have to turn the other cheek, but we get to punch them back. It's not what Jesus was saying. Years ago, I asked a group of teenagers. This has been a long time ago. It wasn't this group of teenagers. But at a camp, what they felt like was the biggest difference between what they thought would happen when they became a Christian and what happened, and, and the way it was, the experience of life with Christ, what they thought and what the actual experience it was. And almost to a kid, they said, we thought being a Christian would be easier. We thought being a Christian would be easier. We thought temptations would be less tempting. 
we thought sacrifice would feel less sacrificial. We thought it would be easier. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. I'll follow Christ and life just gets smooth and it's great and it's easy and we're just tiptoeing through the daisies all the time. Unfortunately, to actually follow Christ, it's a little difficult. It's a little tough. Jesus defined following him as a process of telling ourselves no. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus defined following him as a process of telling ourselves no. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny myself? Take up my cross? No, thank you. I will go around that and I will get the t-shirt at the end of the race. It's not the way it works. A few years ago, uh, my daughter Avery, she was probably two or three at the time. I have a picture of her uh, that I want to show you. How adorable! I can't take it. I can't even look. It's too adorable. <laughs> she was two or three at the time, and it was around Christmas time, and my wife had set out Christmas candies uh, around the house, and, uh, which is not something we normally do, mostly because we'll just eat them all right away. Like, that's what you have with candy. Some of you can have candies around the house, and they just stay there. I don't know how that happens. I eat the candy. But she had put Christmas candies out. And uh, it was a Saturday morning, you know, everybody's starting their day, kind of waking up. And my little two or three-year-old Avery goes over to Christmas candies, and she wants to, like, you know, just that's what she wants to have for breakfast. And even though I'm a pretty lenient guy, and I'm like, I don't know, chocolate's pretty good for you. Studies show, right? Antioxidants, I don't know. Even though I was like, Avery, I think we really got to, we, we really got to, I didn't use this language, but we really have to deny ourselves, take up our breakfast, and then maybe we can eat some candy, Christmas candy. Well, Avery, just, you know how, if you've ever had a kid where it comes out of the blue sometimes, you just tell them no about something, you don't think it's going to be a big deal, and it is just tears. Like, you, you would think they lost a dog that they had been close to for decades. It's just tears, like, I can't have candy. And she said something, this was so interesting that I wrote it down immediately. She said something when I was saying, we can't eat the candy before breakfast. I mean, we'll get it eventually, but we can't have it right now. This is what she said, literally, word for word. She looked at me, tears, and she says, what we want, we can have. Listen, I know that's what your mom has been teaching you, but I, like, it's a different philosophy. No, no, not at all. What we want, we can have. She's like three years old. Where did she get that life philosophy? Where did that come from? What we want, we can have. Look at that face. My goodness. If you're listening online later, this is why you got to be at church. What we want, we can have. And here's the funny thing I think about this, is that, honestly, that is essentially the philosophy our culture lives by. A philosophy that is articulated well by a two-year-old. What we want, we can have. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you want a life that is worth living, if you want a life that matters, if you want a life that lasts, then to follow me, you have to deny yourself. The opposite of this. And Avery, of course, doesn't have this philosophy as much anymore. I asked her permission if, if I could use that. But what we want, we can have. I want you to stop and think about something just really quickly. Um, many of the things, and this is true out, even outside of Christianity, but many of the things that we truly want in life come through a process of denying ourselves, right? A, a, a satisfying marriage, a happy marriage, that does just... For a week, try and experiment and say, I'm going to do everything that I want to do and see how well your marriage is at the end of the week, how good it is, how healthy it is. It's not going to be healthy. 
Because a healthy marriage comes through a process of denying yourself for the other person, on behalf of the other person. Um, there are ways that we try to lighten this up, and, and I'd love to get into details, but, I mean, we do things like, all right, Jesus, what Jesus really meant here was this other thing, and we try to redefine it. We try to make it something that it's not, so it sounds easier. We try to redefine our actions so that it seems like we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, and we're not. I remember when I was a kid, my sister, um, uh, my, we were sledding. It was winter, obviously. <laughs> probably a dumb statement. We were sledding in the winter on the snow, and if you've ever been sledding, you know that the process of creating a great sledding hill is like compacting the snow, making it really slick, and you know, when you're like a like 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, like that's very important. My sister goes down this hill, and then she starts walking back up the hill right on the sledding hill, which is like, come on, we're like trying to make a good sledding hill. First of all, we can't sled down if you're in the way, although I probably would. You're not supposed to, but you're ruining the sledding hill. And I remember, I remember saying very calmly and politely and with a spirit of godliness, please, Rosanna, will you get out of the way? And she said, she's, she said, okay, okay. And she didn't. She just keeps walking up the hill in the same place. Rosanna, and with a, just a spirit of Christ-likeness that had come over me, I wouldn't have ever gotten angry. Uh, would you mind just considering stepping off the sledding hill for your brother so he can enjoy the hill? course it was nothing like that and my sister still trotting up the hill she says this and I vivid memory of this she says I'm trying (laughs) no wait you're doing exactly the same thing nothing has changed about your actions you can't tell me you're trying you're trying looks exactly like not trying (laughs) sometimes our trying to follow Christ looks exactly like not trying to follow Christ. And the only person you're fooling when you say that is yourself. You're not fooling God. You're not even really fooling the people around you. We can't just redefine Jesus' words to make them mean something easier. We can't just redefine our actions to make it something easier, something, make it seem like we're something better. <laughs> I read a quote earlier this week, and I have been wrestling with this quote all week. This has been weighing heavy. Times I've been like, no, that's not right. Other times I've been like, oh, that is so true. And the the quote is this, we aren't followers of Christ if we aren't following Christ. Now, now some of you are like, duh, simple. That quote made me sit down and think, we aren't followers of Christ if we aren't following Christ. Church, have we created a culture, an environment, where people can can consider themselves followers without really following? Have we done that? Maybe we got to make some changes where people can say, I'm trying. Listen, I'm not sure that that's the case. Maybe it is, and we want to show love and grace, and I know you hear sermons like this, and like, oh, it's so hard, accountability, I don't want any of that. But maybe we need to hold one another to higher standards than we do. God is. God cares about what we do. Of course, you're going to think like, okay, how far do I have to take this? All right, I'll try. I'll do a little better. How far do I have to take this? This is the objection we always have. Whenever we find a difficult commandment of God, denying ourselves or giving generously or loving or anything, how far do I have to take this? How far do I have to go? I have a couple kids that are, are homebodies, which is the opposite of me. I like to go. 
I got a couple kids that like to stay, and I am always trying to get them to go with me. Go run errands, go places, go to the park, go on a walk, whatever, let's go. And my kids are always, <laughs> well, some of them, not all of them. I'll let you guess the ones that do. But my kids are always asking these, like, commitment-level questions. How long are we going to be gone? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we're going to the park. It's beautiful. Let's go. I don't know how long we're going to be gone. Um, well, if I, if I go with you, will you buy me something? I get that one from the little guy. No, I'm not going to buy you something. I'm not going to bribe you to spend time with your dad. Come on, just go. Go with me. And they're always asking these questions about like, uh, oh, so where exactly are all the stops? Like, if I go to this place with you, are you also going to stop other places? And I'm just like, ah, never mind, I'm going. You know, like, come on. They're always asking these kind of commitment level questions about w- what we're doing. And I think the problem is, is they don't want to make it feel like this commitment they're making to me is too open-ended. They don't just want to say, all right, Dad, I'll go, and wherever you lead me, I'll follow. They want to know specifically, like, how far, when, when are we coming back, what can I do when I get back, can I watch TV, like, will you buy me some, all that stuff. They want to know all the details. They don't want an open-ended commitment. But guess what, church? If you are following Christ, you are committing to an open-ended commitment, a commitment without limits, because this is how Jesus defined following him. He said, whoever wants to follow me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross is our calibration for how far we have to go in obedience to Jesus. The cross. I, I think this is kind of a bigger deal than maybe we, uh, maybe we think, um, how far does this self-denial stuff have to go? Some, some people will read this passage and they'll be like, the, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying because he had not yet gone to the cross. So they didn't understand that he was telling them to be sacrificial of their lives in order to follow baloney. They lived in a Roman colony and the Romans were fond of crucifixion, especially to put down political rebellion. They knew what crucifixion was. They knew what a cross meant. They knew what a cross represented. And they knew what Jesus was saying when he said, take up your cross. He was saying, live a life of losing your life. Hmm, That sounds familiar. Whoever wants to find his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it, which is the very next verse. Not very long ago, a well-known TV pundit, an audience of tens of millions uh, made a statement about this, what we're talking about. And so I kind of perk up, or I write it down when I hear things like this. And I'm going to leave him unnamed because I think a lot of people in here like this person and enjoy listening to what this person has to say and may even occasionally say, yes, that person is right and he articulates a correct worldview. And so I will follow what this person says about politics and America and life. And at one point, this person was talking about what it meant to help the poor. And how far do we have to go? And so I'm, well, I want to listen to this. And this is what, if you want to know who this was, just come find me afterwards. I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly who it is. I just don't want to, like, lose you right now, you know? If I say his name, some of you are going to be like, I'm out. But I'm not going to do that. I'm so tempted to do that right now, really. (laughs) Call him out. This is what he said. He said, being a Christian, this is about himself, being a Christian, I know that while Jesus promoted charity at the highest level, he was not self-destructive. He's saying Jesus would draw the line at being self-destructive when it comes to loving and helping people. Now, I, I could be wrong here. Feel free to correct me. If, I, if I'm wrong, just shout it out if I'm wrong. But I, 
I seem to recall something in the story of Jesus about a cross and something about him dying on a cross for people he loved and cared about. Something about people ridiculing him on that cross. And while he's on that cross, he is praying to God, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. Jesus was not self-destructive. Jesus destructed himself for our sake. He took his love for us as far as he could take it to the cross. We are looking for the exit ramp real quickly when we want to help people. And I know for some of you, you're like, it's too open-ended. What do I need to do? The next time I see a homeless person on the street, do I give give them the deed to my house? What do I got to do? Sell my car and ride a rusty bicycle on my commute? Maybe that's even too much. And I know we go all there. We're like, oh, it's too far. It's too hard. It's too much. And I'm not even trying to tell you exactly what this looks like and exactly what to do. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. How much do you have to love the cross? How much, how far do you have to go the cross? How much do you have to give the cross? That is the standard that Jesus has given us for following him. He has told us we have to take up our cross. Whew, I don't know. That sounds hard. Did Jesus really mean that? Is that really what he was saying? Yeah. Listen carefully. How this works in your life, I can't answer that for you. I cannot tell you. I cannot look at you and your situation, and your lifestyle, and your choices, and whatever you got going on in your life, and tell you this is what you need to do. But this is what I can tell you. That the Spirit of God who works in you and works through you will help you figure out what it means to follow Jesus to the cross. That is who you, will help you figure that out. But it means you have to be vigilant about letting yourself off the hook, letting yourself pass on things that seem difficult in order to follow Jesus. Because listen... I want to be a follower. I want, I want to follow Jesus, but there are things that come into our lives that make it seem difficult and hard, but that's not a good enough excuse not to follow him. As we, as we wrap up, I just want to tell you two things. Whatever tough obedience lies before you, I want you to know, and this is so important, God works in you and through you to help you accomplish those things. Whatever it is that, that he's put before you. He works in you and through you to help you accomplish those things. But secondly, he is there to pick us up, brush us off, and offer us endless grace when, not if, when we fail and fall short and mess up and do the wrong thing. He's there to just pick us right back up and help us follow him again to the cross. So today, may we truly and deeply follow Jesus regardless of how difficult it is. We're going to dismiss this morning with a word of prayer. After I pray, you're you're free to go, to hang out, to talk, whatever. But my challenge is that you will take the words of Christ seriously when he tells us what it means to be a follower of his. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful uh, to be a part of a church that cares so deeply about uh, you, so cares so deeply about Jesus, cares so deeply about uh, the example that we have of Christ in the scriptures. And we pray, God, that we as a church would take this seriously. Lord, we know that when we look at this from the outside, it sounds daunting. It sounds insurmountable. And we know that without you, that everything is going to be impossible in terms of following you. 
But we know that with Jesus, these things are possible. And so, God, I pray that today that we would be renewed in mind and desire and we'd be renewed in your spirit in order to, to live out the difficult commands of Jesus that, that he has laid out before us, God. Whatever it is in the lives of people in this room, in my life, Lord, I pray that you'd give us the spirit of understanding and the spirit of determination, the spirit of endurance, Lord, your spirit, in order to help us accomplish these things. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You're dismissed.